Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. Today's episode, we have our resident almost doctor, Tegan Dobby. Hello. Hello. Yes. On this week's episode, we're going to be discussing the ethics of research and the way in which science is conducted, reviewed, and published, and the various ethical quandaries that are associated with this, especially some examples of some recent Australian scientific research and investigations on the ethics of those results. And now we launch into our Launchpad News segment. We're going to look at the City of Science for this week in Brisbane, uh, and the University of Queensland based in Brisbane, because they've been doing a lot of research, specifically in the area of cancer drugs, Parkinson's disease, and uh, a lot of other a lot of other illnesses, and they have some interesting approaches to the ethics research, and that has led to a bit of controversy, which we're going to be able to discuss in a bit more detail. So we're going to be spending a bit of time talking about the University of Queensland and the City of Science this week being Brisbane. So, should we get started? Yes. Um, we're talking about research today. I I think I'll be preaching to the converted here, but research is pretty important. It's kind of key. I um, was having this discussion um, with a professor of oncology, of cancer doctoring, um, and I was actually, I was a bit down on research that day. I think I'm just sick of uni. I've done nine years of it and I'm a bit tired of research and um, study and things like that. And what he said to me is when you've been working for a few years you actually start seeing patterns in things and you realise that the only way to change those patterns is to get in and do research on them and define exactly what those patterns are and what's causing those patterns. And that's actually how you change people's lives, is by doing research into the root causes of things. Um, Without that, there's absolutely no way that you can change medical science at least. And that, that actually pretty much accounts for every field. Though we may not think it, um, every field is really adopting and changing, and it's the practices and the procedures that we take with us and we learn. If we don't ever review and understand and think and question the performance or the ideas behind them, we'll never really advance. And medical research is an area which is we need to have good procedures in place for reviewing these because when we make advancements and try new things, it's not like we're stuffing up the production on a coal line or um, stuffing up a new high-tech whiz-bang iPhone, smartwatch or smartphone. We're actually messing with people's lives. Mm. So that can add to people being more cautious about investigating and trying new procedures. And this caution can stymie research, but it can also lead to some interesting procedures in place for judging what is acceptable and what isn't acceptable. So there are um, some examples of when medical research uh, hasn't been held to the highest standard that it should be held to. I've talked in the past um, on this show about vaccinations and um, there's a well-known sort of history behind that relating to how how badly the cause of vaccination has been set back as the result of falsification of data um, relating to the um, measles, mumps, rubella vaccine by uh, no longer Dr Andrew Wakefield. Yes. So he was struck off as a result <laughs> of his, his behaviour um, and I think that's just a, it's a very real example of the impact that this sort of thing can have. Um, so that, that's a really interesting exa- rundown of why it's important to consider research. And what we're going to do now is we're going to delve into a few examples of research 
in practice and the way in which the questions about progress, standards, procedures and ethics actually impacts the development. So obviously at a university there's a lot of research going on and I have no doubt that most of the research at the University of Queensland is of the utmost high standard. However, there's been some recent controversy, um, particularly about one cancer drug that they've been investigating. So there's been some allegations by a researcher who was involved in the, um, in the trials that they were running that data has been misrepresented in their published data. So this is, this is actually stuff. This is not just things that they're doing themselves. This has been published in international journals and there's an allegation that the data that they published isn't quite quite right. Yeah. So it's interesting just to explain what that really means. So when we talk about a lot of news stories, and you'll hear news stories come up about, oh, this latest new drug or this latest new procedure, and they're just about to go into trials. The way the medical community works is all about published and reviewed information. So before a practice can be adopted, a new drug can be trialled and tested and even accepted onto your shelves, it has to go through a lengthy review process. And a lot of that is called peer review, which is where people actually sit down, information is published in journal, and before it's published, a review board actually sits down, tests the results, see if they make sense and make recommendations if it doesn't quite match up. If it passes the peer review, it's then published. And then when it's published, it has the chance to influence other research and the debate more broadly. So you might have one paper published, and then later on, in a couple of months or a couple of years, another paper will be published in response to that original paper, countering some of its claims or measuring and trying to replicate that. That process of publish, respond, measure, replicate, try again, and republish is how science, broadly speaking, works, not just for medicine, but medicine in particular is where it's very important to get repeatable and consistent information. So being published and being referred is actually a very important part of the process. It, it is. It's a really big deal. And I guess um, with medical research in particular, these days to get a drug um, on the market, it takes around a decade from start to finish um, to get a drug actually listed for, for use. So there are, you know, there are... Um, trials in the lab there are trials on animals and that's takes many years even before you get to the point of using um the drug in any sort of human trials that's that's a big step and that's where it's really interesting so you'll hear a lot of medical people talk about fantastic new drugs or developments uh and you'll go like oh that sounds great but the reality is you'll not you won't actually be have that accessible to you or see that anywhere near the shelves or widespread use for another 10 years and with the issue that's been happening up at Queensland University, um, this cancer drug that the allegations have been made about has been a drug that's actually gotten to the point of being used in human trials. So I guess that's why this controversy is so great at the moment is because this is a drug that's at the point of being trialled on real live people who are suffering from a serious disease. So that's not something you want to play around with. It's something you want to get really, really right. And, and what it means is that to get to that stage, there's been a high level of trust and it's had to jump a lot of hurdles to get there. And effectively, the highest standard of hurdles that you'll have to do, medical human trials is basically one step before actual widespread, widespread release. So that means that 
if, as alleged, this does, the results have been falsified to get it to this point, it really opens up a lot of other loopholes and a lot of other questions about what else has been allowed through without meeting the necessary rigour. So let's go into a bit of detail about what's actually being alleged here, Tegan. Okay, so um, the allegation is that some of the data has been um, published in a way that, that misrepresents it. Um, so I guess the public doesn't have access to a lot of the detail of exactly what's been represented or misrepresented. Um, I think this is one of the problems that we're talking about here is, is whether the systems for um, overseeing publication of research is opaque or transparent. And I think it's really very opaque at this stage. We talked about before the peer review process, which is the current process for reviewing medical research before publication in journals. Now, while this could be argued to be an excellent technique for reviewing research because it uses um, experts in the field um, to review the research, so these are the people who know all the research that's going on and they know what's going on. They're absolute experts in the field. However, it's quite a closed-door system. Mm. And it's also self-referential and self-agreeing. So once you're in a system like that, it can often be very hard to challenge the orthodoxy and actually question what's going on there. So we've talked about many times about medical research and medical journals here, but these are something that the public, widely speaking, has limited access to. Yes, you are very welcome to pay and subscribe and read these journals, but they are both A, highly technical, and B, very um, very obviously limited in terms of access. You have to know about what you're looking for. And what that can lead to um, is, of course, uh, self-referential and self-agreeing community. So the, what, the flip side you, of that... What do you mean by that, Justin? Well, it means that unless you're an expert in the field and know which journals to read and know which articles to read and how to interpret the results that they're seeing, it can be very hard to understand what's actually going on. And this is even for medical professionals. I'm not talking about the mm -hmm. layperson who has no experience in it. Um, but the flip side to that is if you just allow the decisions to be made about what is public, what is agreed and what is agreed to be good standard to anyone, that obviously allows a lot of misrepresentation of truth and a lot of complication, which is exactly what we saw in the Wakefield instance in the UK with the um, false allegations about the, the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine. Now, that has been publicly um, and deemed inappropriate by both governments in Australia, in the UK, and by medical boards. But you have to understand that for all the openness and transparency that we aspire to, there is a limitation of actually making sure that we have qualified people looking at it. The question, though, is not that we get rid of one or the other, but where we draw the line and making sure that there isn't a, a closed environment that doesn't accept new ideas without compromising human safety. What you just mentioned was the potential for creating a closed system and that has been another side effect of the peer review system in the past. So another um, old story is about the Nobel Prize winning research done by Barry Marshall and Robin Warren, Australian researchers, on the H. pylori bacterium. Um, so they faced real um, opposition to their results getting published. They tried for years to get it published. No one would publish their data. And the reason why no one would publish them is because the ideas that were putting forward, which are about bacteria and the, the presence and the purpose of bacteria specifically in the human digestive system um, in relation to ulcers, 
was not accepted as being the standard cause and viewed without, with such scepticism that the major journals would refuse to acknowledge the results of it and therefore no ability was given to them to proceed in more detailed studies that would help them actually prove this. So it was, it was really that their opinion, what they'd found, their new research what they discovered didn't fit the current paradigm, the current understanding of how things worked. So people really just wrote them off as being, oh, well, that couldn't be right, even though they had the data to support them. So it took them years of fighting, and eventually one of the things that they did to try and get their research published was that Barry Marshall, um, he drank a broth of bacteria, a broth of this H. pylori, um, and gave himself stomach ulcers. And he was the first patient that he treated. And so he treated himself and got rid of them. And, and that was part of the um, part of the way that they actually... Part of the thing that they had to do to get their research published. And the funny and seems outrageous. sad part about that is that he, that experiment would have never been approved by any ethics board if no. it was done on anyone else. And that was the length he had to go to to really prove his results. And it raises the question about if you have a controversial or an unusual idea that challenges the standard mould of what what is accepted as a result or as a, as a procedure or practice, then to change the opinion by getting good data. Now, we have to stress this. It is very important when you're challenging an idea or coming up with a new theory, if it's not accepted by other people, you need to be able to show with scientific data good procedures that are repeatable across a diverse amount of environments and are consistent that it's actually true. If you can do these things, then it satisfies what the criteria is for science for an accepted theory. But I guess the point we're making is that sometimes people collect that data, but but despite having the data there can't get it published and accepted. So it really raises the question about, is the review process too tight and unselecting ideas, even though they have the evidence to back it up? And the really crucial part here is evidence, scientific method, and actual research. I guess if you look into the philosophy of science, you can see that paradigm shifting is the way that science actually moves forward. It moves forward slowly in, in small sort of steps, But then from time to time, we'll have an entire paradigm shift, like when we realised that the solar system rotated around the sun. Um, And and those leaps that happen are actually really difficult to achieve for scientists. And that that whole theory is actually well described by Kuhn in his uh, books on the paradigm shifts in science. And um, uh, Copernican theory and uh, heliocentrism is one example. Mm. Another example is uh, quantum mechanics and classical mechanics and the fights and controversies that rage for about 40 years on that. The other one is the standard model, or the, the model of light, the way that functions, which is related to quantum mechanics. And so it, it really also helps understand the question that uh, a lot of science is about theory and that theory can change and refine, not absolute fact. Mm. Um, and our understanding of science as we've gone through the ages has moved from an empirical uh, basis of where everything is be able to quantify to an exact value and figure, and this is exactly why something happens, to more, this is our theory of why something should happen, and this is what we can prove to explain a circumstance or what happens in the most majority of encounters in a repeatable and scientific way, which mm. is a bit of a heart of a concept for people to get around when they look to science for pure answers. And this is why um, climate change runs into a lot of problems at the moment um, because the people don't understand the difference between a theory and a solid fact. Mm. And I, 
speaking about my sort of understanding of it, which has evolved over time, I used to I used to really struggle with that idea that science wasn't pure solid knowledge. I always believed that science was knowledge. I I couldn't believe that science couldn't be right. You know, it's su- it's such a strong system science, but really it's it's all theory and actually the key to doing good science is always being prepared to question yourself always asking you know trying to disprove the null hypothesis that's really the key to science and you really got to come away from that fact of science being infallible because it's really it's not the case at all yeah so blind faith in uh, a single idea in principle is not what science is about science is about a dedication to finding and questioning results when they're right and when they're not right and trying to ever get ever closer to a better understanding. Mm. The key there is a better understanding, not the correct understanding, mm. because there will never be a correct understanding of everything. So that raises some interesting questions about research and how it all fits together. So some closing statements just about uh, the research, in, the, in particular this case in Queensland where the controversy has been happening. So I think there's obviously... The thing that I take out of this is that the problems with this research has come to light and there are people out there fighting to make sure that research is done in an ethical and um, transparent way. Um, Professor David Vaux is um, is a medical... Uh, a, sorry, a research ethicist um, and his um, work has been part of bringing the problems with the University of Queensland research to light um, and he lectures around the world on, on research ethics in quite a lot of detail. And he's also a, a director at WeHi, which is a Walter Elizabeth Hall Institute in Victoria and is a very esteemed researcher and we've had a lot of association with him. He's a good friend of YSA. Yep. Um, and I guess um, his comments on this uh, are probably um, the most knowledgeable comments and his opinion is really that It would be great if Australia had an office for research and integrity and an ombudsman for integrity so that any scientist who had any sort of concern or anybody reading a paper all over the country in the world um, who saw something that they had concerns about, they could then know exactly where to go to and that they could have some place that could in an independent way find out what's really going on. And that would solve a lot of the issues that we have with validating the integrity of the research, giving both the researchers who feel oppressed by an overall um, review system and also people who have concerns about the review system being too lenient a way to challenge and validate their questions and their assumptions. But it also gives the public more confidence in science because we run we run the risk at the moment of having a place where people don't trust what science are publishing and don't trust the theories and the results that are being published. You only have to look at the climate change debate to see the challenges and the problems mm-hmm. posed by that. Anything that will help improve the confidence and the reputation and the validity in people's minds of this will be a great boon to the scientific community. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, The Green Point. We talked about research ethics and the way we structure and review our research to make sure we reach good answers that also encourage innovation and new ideas to come through. We also discussed the theories of scientific innovation. Our ending theme was composed by Audionatics. Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.